Well, let's turn to the closing two verses of Isaiah chapter 50, verses 10 and 11. Who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks, Walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks you have kindled. This you shall have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. There are many ways in which the Bible describes a true child of God, a true believer. And here is one that stands out. A person who belongs to God, fears him and obeys the voice of his servant. Those two things are always true of the child of God. They fear the Lord and they obey the voice of his servant, the servant of the Lord, of course, being our Lord Jesus Christ, the one of whom the prophet Isaiah speaks in the so-called servant songs, but throughout the book. In other words, a true Christian will be a reverent person, with a sense of awe at the greatness of God and a sense of humility in his presence. A true Christian is not a flippant person trying to be serious, but a serious person who knows how to smile. There's a big difference between those two things. And then a true believer is someone who obeys the Lord Jesus Christ, who listens to him, receives his word, heeds that word, and submits to his lordship. Is that true, I wonder, of us this evening? Do we have a sense of the greatness of God and a sense of reverence in his presence? Alas, it's often missing today, even among people with the correct theology. We read at the beginning of the service those three references in Psalm 103 to those who fear the Lord. And throughout the Bible, that is one of the hallmarks of a true believer. But today, often there's a lightness and an airiness and a superficiality, which is grieving and must certainly grieve the Lord himself. Do we have this sense of God's greatness? And then, are we willing to submit to our Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord? Not only to come to him as our Savior, but to obey him as our Lord, to take his yoke, as he put it, and to learn from him. Well, that's a true believer. And if we have that sense of reverence in God's presence, and we are anxious to obey the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ, then that's one of the descriptions of a child of God. And yet, such people may find themselves in serious trouble. You'll notice the question here, who walks in darkness and has no light? Who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? This is not the darkness of sin, the darkness of spiritual blindness. 
It's the darkness of trouble and difficulty and hardship. The Lord is our light and our salvation. We are children of the light if we are Christians. We know the one who said, I am the light of the world. But there are times of perplexity. There are gloomy days in Christian experience when the weather turns wintry and cold. Perhaps we are walking the hills, as Pam and I did on our honeymoon. We climbed Loch Nagar, that beautiful Scottish mountain. But then the mist came down. It's very easy to lose your bearings. It's very easy to get lost. And sometimes Christians may be like that. They feel as though they're walking in a mist. Some Christians travel to heaven by night. They don't seem to see God's face, even though they shelter beneath his wings. William Cooper was a man like that, who suffered from serious, nervous, and mental difficulties, and had very black moments, very black days. Others may have periods of darkness like that, when summer seems to have ended, the leaves have fallen, and there's a chill in the air. When Martin Luther was given day and a night to consider whether he was going to recant of his new convictions, his new evangelical convictions. That night he sought the Lord's face in prayer, praying for a sense of God's presence, which was not given to him. We do not enjoy days like that. When you're a child, sometimes you're troubled by the curtains blowing in the wind in the dark. Some of you will have remembered Miss Elizabeth Brond, who ran Providence House in the Clapham area of East London for many years. And she would take those young people, those tough young people, used to the concrete jungle. She would take them down to a farm in Devon that they owned. And then she would take them out onto the moors, out onto Dartmoor. And these young people, who were so bold and confident when they were in London, were terrified of the large open spaces on the moors. Well, sometimes we, if we are Christians, can feel like that. Peter spoke about the trials that come our way and the heaviness that goes with it. We may feel afraid and uncertain, unsure of ourselves, even panic. There are many reasons for this, as we know. In William Cooper's case, it was mental illness. There are physical problems that we have to endure. We may be depressive or may suffer from depression. In bouts, it may be bereavement. It could be unemployment. It could be loneliness. We know that there's always an undercurrent of joy Peter, having reminded those early believers that there is a heaviness that goes with the trials, also said, nevertheless, in this rejoice. We can rejoice in, in the midst of these trials and difficulties. 
But what makes for real darkness is a sense of God's absence. We don't really feel that he's with us. We read the Bible, we pray, but there seems to be no light. We are children of the light, but we are walking in the darkness. Verily, you are a God who hides yourself. Think of our Lord in that great cry of dereliction on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it can be difficult to see a way through. It seems never-ending. You wonder if God can see. You don't know what to do. You're feeling that somehow or another it's never going to get any better. And people, though they're helpful, don't really seem able to help you. Who among you fears the Lord, who obeys the voice of his servant, who walks in darkness and has no light? What are we to do? Well, there are one or two things here that we are told to do. The first is obvious. We are to go on walking. We are not to turn back. We are to go on. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You continue. He who endures to the end will be saved. You go on trusting. Like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I mentioned Martin Luther and the fact that he did not receive from the Lord a conscious sense of his presence that night. But you will remember what happened the following day when he stood before the imperial died at Worms. Here I stand. My conscience is bound to the word of God. I can do no other. God help me. He went on walking. Well, what does that mean? It means, as we are told in the text, trusting in the name of the Lord. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. As I said, people can be a real encouragement and a help to us. The example of other people can inspire us. But we don't look to them. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Because he knows, he knows, he understands, he cares. The cross is the obvious illustration of that and indeed the empowerment of all our continuance. It's referred to here in this passage. The Lord God has opened my ear. This is the Messiah speaking. And I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. We are to trust in the name of the Lord. And the cross is the empowerment that we need for that. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And he is the Lord. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. That's the great name Jehovah. I am or I will be who I will be. It's his name. 
It's not just his title. Pam is my wife, but I don't call her wife. I call her by her name. She is Pam. Some of you may have seen that series of films about the early slaves in America. It's called Roots. And the slave who was first taken from Africa to America was a young man called Kunta Kinte. And he was given another name and was forced, whipped, and made to utter the new name that he was given by his cruel, brutal slave owner. But under his breath, he kept saying to himself, I am Kunta Kinte. That is my name. The Lord is his name. It's a beautiful name. It's a glorious name. The self-existing, eternal, unchanging, glorious, I am. The name of the Lord is a strong tower, we read. The righteous run into it and are safe. It's a glorious name, this. Jehovah. Do you remember how Thomas Oliver's wrote about the name Jehovah? Thomas Oliver's was a vagabond living in the 18th century around the Bristol area and he saw a large concourse of people one day and decided to join them and got to the edge of the crowd and there was a man preaching. It was George Whitfield. And the text was a brand plucked from the burning. And Thomas Oliver's was converted. And he wrote one of the great hymns, The God of Abraham Praise, whose all-sufficient grace shall guide me all my happy days in all my ways. He is my faithful friend. He is my gracious God. And he will save me to the end through Jesus' blood. The precious name of Jesus is the name Jehovah. He is Jehovah Jesus. I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Before Abram was, I am. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the vine. I am. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. All that lies in the being of Jesus as God and man is for us. And we are to trust in him. You believe in God, he said. Believe also in me. I and my Father are one. We know that he is our Lord and our God. My Lord, said Thomas, and my God. So in the darkness as we struggle and the mist is down and we are not sure of our way, let him trust in the name of the Lord. And then let him rely upon his God. That's faith, real faith. Real faith is about relying on God, not on yourself. It's not about relying on our own works, our own achievements, our own pedigree. It's about relying on the Lord. 
you lean on him. In the darkness, you lean on him. You trust in him. Cooper did, though he was unwell. He wrote some exquisite hymns, didn't he? God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. And that glorious hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. A man like William Cooper could write a hymn like that. That was his confidence. He was relying on Jesus Christ. I well remember hearing the Reverend Omri Jenkins preaching in my father's church in Neath. And he described how he and the Reverend Paul Tucker spent an afternoon looking for Spurgeon's grave, and they couldn't find it. And eventually, Paul Tucker motioned him to come over. I found it, he said. And there it was, just the simple initial C-H-S, and underneath, ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Then in a nobler, sweeter song I'll sing thy power to save when this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. Cooper wrote that hymn. We rely on our God as well as trusting in his name. Now the Christian will do that. A true believer will do that. This is the Christian response to darkness. This is how the Christian responds and reacts to darkness. When faith is tested, it stands. People used to say, didn't they, after the Second World War, well, I lost my faith. They could never have had it, could they? Or they wouldn't have lost it. It wasn't real faith, saving faith. Because real saving faith is not just for fine weather and summer days. It's not just for success and prosperity. The wise man built his house on the rock because he knew there would be a storm. You dig deep because you know there will be problems and trials to come. Last year, a very interesting and a fascinating and brilliantly written book was published about the endeavor, the ship that Captain Cook took to sail to the Southern Ocean. It was built in Whitby, and it was built of seasoned oak, built in such a way as to withstand the enormous stress of the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans and the severe storms that would be encountered on the journey. Because the people who built that boat knew what was to come, and so they built it to withstand the elements. And so we need to dig deep and build strongly to prepare for the future, to prepare for the ultimate, the day of judgment. There will be a day of reckoning, there will be a day of judgment, and we need to prepare for it. We need to be prepared for eternity, for eternity. All of us need to be ready for that. So we trust in the Lord, we lean on the Lord. He's the one who will bring us through. Jesus, you 
Lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. That's right. You're putting your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll do that if you're a Christian. It's one of the signs of a true believer. Distinguishes the believer from an unbeliever. Indeed, we have a description here of the unbeliever. Look, says the prophet, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with sparks. There you are building your own fire, making your own sparks. Very well, walk in the light of your fire, and in the sparks you have kindled. You carry on, you live the life you want to live. This you shall have from my hand, you will lie down in torment. That's typical, isn't it, of the unbeliever. Self-sufficient, no need of the gospel. Christianity, an opiate, a drug, a crutch, don't need it. I can manage my own way. Things will change one day. They will change. We'll have to face God. If the house is built on the sand, it will collapse in ruins. You will lie down in torment. It's a warning. That's the unbeliever. But the believer is not like that. The believer is wise. The believer prepares for eternity. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's what the Christian is continually to do. And unbelievers are to come as every Christian has come. In self-despair to put their trust and confidence in Jesus Christ as their only Lord and Savior. And if you haven't done that, that is what you must do. As we've had to do, many of us, not to any credit of ours, we have none. He drew me, and I followed on. That's the way we come to him, and then we are to stay with him. We are to go on walking, go on trusting, go on leaning, even when walking in the dark. And the message is clear, isn't it? Fear the Lord, obey the voice of his servant. And when darkness comes, go on trusting in his name. Go on leaning on the Lord. You will come through the storms and the vicissitudes of life and the waves. And one day you will enter into the world of light and joy and life and love. Weeping endures for the time being. But joy comes in the morning. We were in Kenton the first church that we had coming back from New Zealand. And there was a most saintly lady in the congregation by the name of Hilda Bailey. She and her husband were brought up in the exclusive brethren. But they were dismissed, expelled. He was ill. He was schizophrenic. And sometimes he would hide away in the shed at the bottom of the garden, afraid to come out afraid to see anybody. But they, when they were dismissed from the exclusive brethren, she from being seen in the street without a hat on, they found their way to Westminster Chapel. And they could not believe that anybody who was not among the brethren could preach the gospel like Lloyd-Jones. But they thrived. I remember Dr. Lloyd-Jones telling us about Mr. Bailey that every Friday evening he would come forward to have a chat with the doctor and the doctor would put his hand on his shoulder and say, it's all right, Mr. Bailey, it's all right, because he was terrified of dying and of death. You will not see death. 
Well, eventually, the time came for Mr. Bailey to die. I never did know him, but his wife, as I say, joined us in Kenton. And he had never once, throughout their long marriage, thanked her for what she had done for him, thanked her for her care. He had never once said, I love you. But he collapsed in the hallway of their home in Pinner. And he was dying. It was obvious that he was dying. And he said to Hilda, Hilda, I have never said how much I love you. I have never said how much I am grateful to the Lord for you and for all you've done for me over these years. Hilda, I've been terrified of dying all my life. Now the moment has come, all my fears have gone. I'm going home. The Lord gave her the exquisite privilege and the joy of seeing him becoming normal as he left this world for the next. Sometimes God's people have to struggle as he did. We can glorify God in the struggle and in the midst of it all. We can bring praise to his name because our faith will one day be declared to his praise and honor and glory at his return. And we shall be able to become ourselves, to become normal, because none of us is normal. We're all abnormal in one way or another. The only normal person who's ever lived is Jesus, the proper man. We should become normal. We should become ourselves. We should be home. Just a fortnight ago, I had a letter from a very dear friend who was diagnosed with terminal cancer and told by the doctors in the hospital that he had only days to live. And he wrote me a letter. He said, the family are being very supportive and rejoicing with us that our hope is not for this life only. When we came home after the news, I took down Pilgrim's Progress and I reread the account of Christian and Hopeful reaching and crossing the river. I skipped through to Christiana and her companions doing the same. A wonderful encouragement. I keep saying to folk, don't be sad. We're not. The Lord called Murray home. Well, are you walking in the darkness? Maybe there are times when you feel as though you're in the darkness. We're told what to do. Trust and obey. Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him rely upon his God. This impregnable rock. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. Come what may. It is well. It is well with my soul. Oh, may the Lord write these precious truths on our hearts and help them, help us day by day to live by them and to prove him to be the all-sufficient God that he is.